Good evening, everyone. Preaching in the name of Jesus again. I think we'll take a little time and give opportunity for anyone who wants to say from memory any part of Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 15. Some of you managed to get down to about verse 10. Maybe you would like to pick up at 11 and take it from there. Or whatever. Good job. Thank you. Anyone else? All right. Let's, we'll just stop with that. I think we'll forego the reading together. It's a Saturday night. I don't want to keep you all too late. One of the hazards of preaching a solid week of meetings is the uh, potential of people picking up on what the preacher is struggling with personally, perhaps, because of the threads that run through each message. And I feel like this message is one that I should preach, but as I studied it again and looked at this subject, I felt as if maybe I've been kind of saying some of these things all week. Bear with me, if you would. I do feel led to bring the message that I've alluded to on the topic of idolatry. You know, this, to give a little background to this study of mine, I was uh, listening to some recorded messages by a man And he talked about the spirit of idolatry, and it opened my mind to the reality that um, we're probably a little bit closer to idolaters than we would like to admit. Because anything that we seek to meet needs, especially spiritual needs outside of Christ, is at a fundamental level idolatry. And so I could probably just sit down now and let you chew on that one for a little bit. I would like to just expound that a little bit and um, show you some of the things that I've learned. Let's go all the way back to Deuteronomy. We're going to actually look at some Old Testament concepts in relation to this thing of idolatry. And then we will look at an example in the New Testament. So Deuteronomy 5 
Moses is, um, the book of Deuteronomy is kind of a reiteration of the law. And so in Deuteronomy 5, Moses is reviewing the Ten Commandments with the children of Israel. And I'm going to break in reading at uh, verse 4. The Lord talked with you face to face in the mount out of the midst of the fire. I stood between the Lord and you at that time to show you the word of the Lord, for ye were afraid by reason of the fire, and went not up into the mount, saying, I am the Lord thy God, which brought thee out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. Thou shalt have none other gods before me. Thou shalt not make thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the waters beneath the earth. Thou shalt not bow thyself unto, bow down thyself unto them, nor serve them, for I the Lord thy God am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children under the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Now we referenced these verses earlier, but what we're going to look at here are some concepts of what drives idolatry or what is... What God commanded them not to do helps us understand why idolatry is so serious and what is the spirit, perhaps, behind it. The first thing that we see is in verses 6 and 7, idolatry, God is stating very categorically, I am the Lord thy God. Now, the word Lord is a fascinating word. If you look at where it comes from in the English language, and I'm not going to attempt to pronounce this word, but it's spelled, the old word is spelled, it's a pretty old word. It's actually a compound word. This word is what now we would, um, our word for loaf, like bread, a bread loaf. And this word is the where we would get our word ward or warden. And so you get this idea of and, and you run it together, and I'm not sure how it was pronounced when it was spelled like this. I'm guessing the H was silent. I, I don't know how you would say that. But um, it has morphed into the word Lord, and it means keeper of, of the bread. And it made a lot of sense back when you had the, the lords in England and all the, the serfs. Because the Lord really did keep the bread. He was the one that gave his servants all they needed to live. And so when God says, I am the Lord, that comes out of, I mean, obviously it's English. And so when God said it, it was a different word in Hebrew. But that's how it's been translated and handed to us. And so the writers understood something, this concept that God is the provider of everything. He is the keeper of the bread. And the fascinating thing is when you go into the New Testament and you, and you take that concept and Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Okay, so now we have this, not only this physical sense that God provides all things for us, but also spiritually, Jesus is the bread. He is the keeper of it and he gives it to us. And so the spirit behind idolatry says, I don't believe that the Lord is the sole source. Now, we don't voice these things, but that's what drives us to idolatry because we are looking elsewhere for bread, whether spiritual or physical, and, and not to God. The second thing that we notice in verse 8 
is that it says thou shalt not make thee any graven image. We talked about this earlier um, in the week when we when we learned that we like a God that we understand. We want a God that we can control. We want a God that we can manipulate. Think about 1 Kings chapter 18 where, uh, I think I'm right on this, I better just double check, but I think that's the passage where the... Um, the prophets of Baal had that uh, standoff with um, Elijah. Am I right on that? Is that 1 Kings 18? I think I'm right on that. Um, should have double-checked it, but I think that's right. Yes, it is. So notice what they did there. They're jumping around, cutting themselves. They're trying to figure out what it's going to take to get their God to respond. And that's, again, idolatry. And the thing that's so sinister about idolatry is that we take idolatrous tendencies to the true God. And so we somehow want to learn how to pull God's strings so that he gets, so he does what we want him to do for us. And so we're not really truly worshiping the God who is the supplier of all things and the supplier of all good things. We, we actually have set up a God in our minds and we think it's the true God. It's a very subtle thing. And I don't want to be scaring you tonight and make you feel like you're all of a sudden all condemned because you've worshipped God wrong or whatever. It's just that it opened my mind to an understanding of how I approach God and how I ask him for things and what I expect from him in a different way when I saw these verses in this light. Also in verse 8, we learned that idolatry worships the creature and not the creator. Usually someone or something that fundamentally we believe is going to fix whatever issue we're facing. And, and, we, and we really can do this with people. We idolize people a lot because we, we find people that we like and, and we understand how they uh, process their thoughts and they can walk us through things and and so we, we turn to them uh, for a lot of help and that can be helpful but it also can be an idolatrous relationship with that person because we're turning to them and eventually they're, they're going to burn out they're not going to be able to help us past a certain point a true friend is going to actually be a channel that takes us toward God and not trying to answer all the questions of in and of themselves A spirit of idolatry is going to produce hatred and anger and disillusionment with the true God because God knows what is best for us. And when I say God, I'm talking about Jehovah, the true God, the Lord, the, the ultimate keeper of the bread. He does not just give us everything we want. And he's very wise and very good when he does that. But if we have a, uh, an idolatrous spirit driving our request to him, we will eventually be frustrated with God. And it's appalling to me whenever I go past signs for churches and they say, tried everything, tried Jesus. Well, really? You don't just try Jesus, do we? We, we have to actually take that step and say, Jesus, I completely trust you to give me everything that I need according to your understanding of what I need. That is the ultimate worship 
that we can give. The spirit of idolatry is described in the New Testament in Ephesians 5.5 and Colossians 3.5 as covetousness. And we talked about contentment the other night, so I feel like some of these thoughts overlap a little bit. But the whole thing of coveting things, again, is what drives... What drives covetousness is believing that there's something out there that's going to solve a problem that I have in my life. And so we covet things and we covet relationships and we covet whatever it is. And it all comes back to this belief that the Lord is not the sole bread keeper. He is not the sole source. Let's look at an example of a man who had this struggle in the New Testament. Turn with me to Luke 18. Luke 18, we know this story as the rich young ruler, or this man as the rich young ruler. And I like Luke's account because of what it doesn't say. Luke 18, um, yes, Luke 18, 18. And a certain ruler asked him, saying, Good master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? None is good, save one that is God. Thou knowest the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not kill. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor thy father and thy mother. And he said, All these have I kept from my youth up. Now when Jesus heard these things, he said unto him, Yet lackest thou one thing. Sell all that thou hast, and distribute unto the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. And when he heard this, he was very sorrowful, for he was very rich. And when Jesus saw that he was very sorrowful, he said, how hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through a needle's eye than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And they that heard it said, Who then can be saved? And he said, The things which are impossible with men are possible with God. And Peter said, Lo, we have left all and followed thee. And he said unto them, Verily I say unto you, There is no man that hath left house or parents or brethren or wife or children for the kingdom of God's sake, who shall not receive manifold more in this present time and in the world to come, a life everlasting. So here we have this rich young ruler, we call him. We don't know how old he was, but he was young enough to be called young, so probably mid to upper 20s is just a, a guess. And he comes with a request that I think all of us would ask Jesus if we had the chance, right? If we could ask Jesus one question, this would be it. What do I need to do to make sure of eternal life? It's a very good question and one that we should all ask ourselves. And then Jesus goes over a list of commandments. And what's fascinating is that he actually doesn't even mention the command that we looked at in Deuteronomy. He doesn't say, thou shalt not have any other gods before me. And it looks to me as if Jesus is setting this young man up to understand something about himself. And I don't think Jesus was being tricky. He was just helping him think through his own heart and his own motives. And so he lists six commands. And he said, well, I kept all of these. And Jesus didn't even argue with him. He said, that's possible. He didn't say that. But he says, you do have one thing yet that you need. And that is you need to get rid of all your riches and sell them and give to the poor. And this command to sell and give touched the idol in the man's life. 
because he saw his riches as his way to provide for himself. He didn't need to depend on God because of his riches. At least that's what it looks like. And so the young man went away sorrowful because in the end, he really did believe in his riches more than he believed in Jesus. Or else he knew that Jesus was right, but he was not willing to give up what felt so good at the moment. There's so many lessons we can pull from that, but what I want to get is that when Jesus went to the very heart of it, he touched the thing that he worshipped, and he went away sorrowful. He just couldn't take that. And we'll get to that another in just a little bit. We'll talk more about that. So the question to me, moving into a very practical applying this message, the things, the question that lies at the bottom of this whole thing of idolatry is the question whether we want God or not. If you ask any person on the street if they want to go to heaven, what must I do to inherit eternal life? They want to go to heaven. All of you want to go to heaven. I want to go to heaven. I want to have eternal life, right? But here's the catch. God's going to be there when we get there. And if we don't want God now, we won't want him then either. I don't know why we think that when we get there, we're suddenly going to want God and reject him all of our lives. And that's the very essence of idolatry. When we choose to believe that there's something other than God who is the source of all good things, we want heaven, but we don't want God to be there when we get there. The rich young man wanted eternal life, but he didn't want Jesus. And that's very sobering, because idolatry is going to make Jesus be who we want him to be. And I think that's why I really like reading things and hearing people talk that challenge what I think Jesus is. Because it shakes me just a little bit and forces me to think, who is Jesus? What is he really asking? Is he really a rich white American? Or is he a poor Jew? that says, I don't know where I'm going to lay down tonight, and that's actually how I want you to live. Now, I know that that statement right there could cause a lot of discussion, and, um, and it's good discussion to have. And so, if we're honest with ourselves, we're all facing the question that the rich young man did here, and we need to ask ourselves, what are we going to do about it? I think we all have heard the statement that God creates every person with a desire to worship. And we spend a lot of our lives figuring out how to fill that desire. And I think that's what the signs mean when they say, tried everything else, try Jesus. I think that's what the sign means. I think the intent behind it is good, but... I still feel like it's a, it's a flippant way to present Jesus to a world that really needs Jesus. Someone put it this way, I forget where I read this, but idolatry 
one of the ways that we can kind of think through idolatry in our lives is to think of what is heaven to us and what is hell to us, if you can bear with me using that term. So, for instance, if heaven is being married and hell is being single, then the functional savior in that situation becomes a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a husband or a wife. You follow me? We're idolizing a person to, to transfer us from the hell of singlehood to the heaven of marriage. And you can take that, that thought and unpack it in whatever area you're facing. And I think that it, it really clarifies some things. Because ultimately, the hell, the real hell is eternal separation from God. And the real heaven is eternity with God. And the real Savior is Jesus Christ to transfer us from one to the other. That's true. That's not idolatry. But if we get those things mixed up, and we think somehow that the worst possible thing that could happen to us is to go through life penniless, and the best possible thing that could happen to us is to be a millionaire, well, then money becomes the God, becomes the, the spiritual or the equivalent of the Savior. <clears throat> How do we know if we have an idol? I'm going to go over a list very quickly. Some things that I believe help us to know if we have an idol. First of all, we have an idol if something or someone is causing me to disobey something that God clearly commands. If I clearly am going against Scripture to fulfill whatever it is, to get the thing or the person that we want, then that person is an idol. Another uh, indicator very closely related to that is that something gives me greater joy than Christ. If we can't find the fullness of joy in a relationship with Jesus Christ, we have to turn to something else to fill that up, whatever that is. It's actually an empty dream. It's, a, it's an empty chase. But if we find ourselves turning to something repeatedly, and you know, I don't know if I'll, I don't think I will, so I'll just bring it in here. I was thinking about bringing a message on the whole issue of moral purity and moral failures, but I don't know if I will. But to me, this is actually the core of that whole thing because we're turning to sensual pleasures to fulfill something and, and we think that it's going to fix the pain in our life and it doesn't. Jesus is the only thing, if I can call him a thing, Jesus is the only one who can, can do that. Something is an idol if it gives me the most excitement about the future. What is it that motivates us to get out of bed in the morning? Sometimes those motivations are pretty base. We know that if we don't get out of bed, then we won't have money to pay the bill. Now, I'm not suggesting that that's, a, if you feel that way on a Monday morning after you've been out to church Sunday night, I understand that. But I think you also understand the concept that, that, that when a motivating force in our life and it's all we can talk about. That's what drives us. That's what we live for. Um, what we daydream the most about. Something is an idol, or an indicator that something is an idol, if I fear losing it more than anything else. Just think about what it is in your life that if you lost it, would really rock you hard. And there's things in life that would rock us pretty hard. It would be a big deal if I would lose my wife, for instance. That, that would be a big deal. But if I know that that is going to actually turn me bitter against God, 
then I'm suggesting that my wife may be an idol to me or I'm idolizing her. Whereas if I know in, in the core of my being that nothing will shake me from following Christ all the way to the end, yes, it's still going to be a big deal to lose my wife. But I can rest assured that she is not my center. She's not where I believe that all the source of good things come from, even though most of them do probably. Um, what are some things that people turn to? I mentioned one already the whole thing of, of sensuality. But what are some other things that we turn to? I want to read a list of things that I just thought of that we sometimes turn to, young, old, middle, wherever you find yourself. But I think that, that it's obvious in my life and in other people's lives, these are some common traps that we fall into. And I don't know how many I have, but things like music. People turn to music and I believe that the louder a person's music has to be is proof of how loud the inner conflict is. If we have to have blaring loud music, it just means that that inner racket is too loud and we just drown it out. And it doesn't have to be music. Another possibility of drowning that conflict out is pleasure, just pursuit of pleasure, the next fix. I remember um, talking to a man um, we, I was doing some business with, and I didn't know him well, so most of our conversation was just idle chit-chat. But one of the things that I noticed that was a theme that ran through his entire conversation was fun. Have you ever been to such a place, a uh, certain park? Well, no, I never have. Oh, that was fun, and he went to describe how much fun this was. Have you ever gone and done this or that? Well, no, I never went there either. Well, that's fun. And, and I could tell that this man lived for fun. He, he was looking for answers to his problems in going to amusement parks or whatever it was. People turn to sports and movies and money and possessions and f sometimes friends. We just turn to people to try to just create this social kerfluffle that we can lose ourselves in, that we don't ever have to sit and analyze, you know, what, is, what am I looking to these people for? What do I expect them to provide for me? And so many times we can actually turn to these people instead of to God. Smartphones are another big thing. If we need answers for life, we just pick up our phone and I guess we think Google has the answer. Um, or Siri or Alexa or whoever you talk to with those phones. I believe people sometimes turn to food, something very necessary for life, but they just use it as a, as a means of somehow thinking that that's going to fix the void in their life. And it's a very sad situation to be in. And one of the things that maybe bishops struggle with more than anybody else is that we find a false sense of fulfillment in serving the church instead of Jesus. Is that safe to say? That we sometimes, if we, if, you, if we would lose that church responsibility, we would find ourselves shaken and wondering who we are. Now, I think that's probably true for more than bishops, but I wonder if, if we don't face it on a level. I know I certainly do. And um, 
And it's and it's interesting to try to process that. And I'm not sure I'm ready to unpack it here in front of you all, but um, it, it's it's something that I think sometimes even good things can become a means to try to avoid the reality that's in our hearts. And it becomes an idol, even though it's a good thing. And that's what makes it so tricky because, hey, he's busy doing church work. That's got to be good, right? Well, anyway. How do we know if we have an idol? What happens when that thing is touched by someone? What if someone comes and says, I think you spend too much time on your phone? Or your parents say to you, teenagers, I would like you to stay home instead of being with your friends. What that response, what the response that comes out of our hearts and out of our mouths at that point may be an indicator of where my worship really is. Another question that comes to my mind when I think about how do we know if we have an idol, what is it? that we get angry at God about. Now, I believe in talking to God and telling him about how we feel. And I have already expressed some of my anger to God. But when we're asking God a question like, God, how dare you take that away? How dare you let that happen? Just analyze what we're actually saying. We're actually saying, God, you have no right to take me out, my comfort away from me. And that indicates that we're actually finding more comfort in something other than God. And, and it's challenging to me to, uh, to think about that. Well, what are we supposed to do with this? How, if we've discovered that somehow in our in our hearts we've strayed from true worship and we are holding something higher than God. What are we supposed to do? Well, first of all, we need to be open to the possibility that it has happened. It's it's a it's a tricky it's a tricky thing because God as we talked about in the very first evening, God does not often just come down and, and hit us over the head with a hammer. He he's often very gentle with us, so gentle in fact that if we choose to ignore him we can. And so we, I, I want to just challenge us all to open ourselves to the possibility that we have allowed something to take the place of God in our hearts. If we're not even open to the possibility, then I don't know how to help anybody at that point. I don't know how to help myself. And then we need to move on into learning how to let God feel, fill all of our needs. And this is a lifelong journey. I don't expect to hear anyone here say, I've attained to this 100%. I don't, I don't believe it's possible in a sense in this human uh, cage but it needs to be the pursuit it needs to be the longing that those who hunger and thirst after righteousness they will be filled Um, and this is going to be hard especially if we have become addicted to other people and other things it can be a really difficult journey to break away from that but it must be done And so those are just two suggestions that I have to help us overcome this, um, or at least to analyze where we're at and what we're doing. So to conclude tonight, I simply want to just say again that Jesus Christ really is the answer for all problems. We have to believe that. We just have to. 
um, diets aren't going to answer the problem of life. Friends aren't going to. Um, the internet won't. Um, counselors won't. Only Jesus Christ will answer all the problems of life. How that's going to happen for every one of us is going to be our own journey and our own uh, experience. And when we wholeheartedly pursue that, then I really believe that all of these other things will find their proper place. Yes, we'll still have to go earn money. Yes, we'll still have friends and we'll probably still use smartphones. But they won't control us and they won't become the thing that we look to for the answers. That's just what I want to leave us with tonight. God bless you all. And I uh, think I'll turn it back over to the ministry.